You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine, the purest form of nicotine there is. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1. O-U-T-D-O-O-R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether and fully loaded chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. The Houndsman XP podcast is fueled by Joy Dog Food. Joy Dog Food has a rich tradition of supporting the Houndsman of America. Founded in 1945, Joy is proud of its history and the relationship it has built with the American Houndsman. And in 76 years, there's never been a recall. Made with 100% American-made high-quality ingredients, Joy Dog Food has one of the highest calorie-dense formulas on the market. For 76 years, this Made in America product has kept hunting dogs in the field day after day, season after season. And when we say Made in America, Joy has a long track record of fighting for American freedoms by being on the front lines against the animal rights movement and their extremist tactics. Joy will fuel your hounds and fight for your freedoms, fueled by Joy. This is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in here. The original podcast for the complete houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Get up here! Yeah! 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 Good boy! Good boy, Ranger! Uniting houndsmen across the globe from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many days how many days a week do you spend in the clinic? 
as much as I can, to be honest with you. Anytime that I get, I'm, I'm out there. Join us for every heart-pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll tell you like I tell everyone else. I'm going to hunt whether you're here or not, so you might as well be here. Houndsman XP brings you a Houndsman profile this week. We have Mr. Alan Bridges from Athens, Georgia on the podcast this week. I'm happy to be able to bring this conversation between Alan and I uh, to the podcast. Alan is also a leader among Houndsmen in the state of Georgia. You'll hear about his involvement in his coon hunting organization down there. We talk about his family farm and they make a living off this farm growing beef so this is going to be a great podcast for us it gets to know a fellow houndsman who is out there making a difference in his local area and across the united states you can find him on social media he's on facebook he is the admin for uh the the facebook group coon hunting conversations and not a hard guy to find he's more than happy to talk to you and he's always working hard for you the houndsman i also want to give a big shout out to our patreon supporters the people that keep the lights on for this show if you haven't joined us on patreon you can do so and what does that mean what does it mean to support us on patreon by by becoming a patron for Houndsman XP, you can do that for as little as $1 a week. And with that $1 that you're investing, we are going to pay you back with discount codes from several manufacturers, several vendors who sponsor this show, who have agreed to give you discounts for supporting this podcast. We also conduct monthly drawings for our patron supporters. We put a prize package together. We put all the names in the hat and we draw it out. Last month, we gave away a Ging 4 package charge, $199 value. We've got our semi-annual and our annual drawings coming up. We've got a lot of great prizes lined up for that. I don't even know what that annual is going to be the total value on that it's going to be well over $500 so it's like one of our patrons just told me uh, not too long ago he can't believe that we give away the packages we do for the price that he pays he said according to his stats he has a good chance of making money on this deal so Join us on Patreon. Go to our website at houndsmanxp.com, click on the support tab, and you can start joining other houndsmen who support this podcast. And you can do that for as little as $1 per week. Guys, it's time to get down to this episode. Mr. Alan Bridges joins us. We got a couple of hounds loaded up in this Old South dog box. We're going to dump the box. Southern Hound Hunting Magazine is the most comprehensive magazine that represents your lifestyle as a houndsman. If you can hunt it with a hound, it is being covered in the pages of Southern Hound Hunting Magazine. You also get an in-depth look at the men and women who are 
engaged in this lifestyle, living it every day to the fullest. From the Rocky Mountains to the Southern Swamps and across the ocean with articles about our international houndsmen and what they're chasing across the pond. Go to southernhoundhunting.com, get your subscription for $15 a year. Southern Hound Hunting Magazine, promoting the fair chase experience. In this episode of the Houndsman XP Podcast, we have Mr. Alan Bridges from Athens, Georgia. And Alan, I am really happy that you decided to come on the Houndsman XP Podcast. How are you today? I'm great, Chris. I'm excited to be here and I'm excited to do this thing with you. Do you have any idea why I would reach out to you and ask you to be on the Houndsman XP Podcast? Well... I've got a big mouth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I try to stay. I try to stay involved with the issues that that uh, that are going on today. And you and I have had some conversations in the past, and and uh, we kind of see things eye to eye. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And and we're not just trying to talk in an echo chamber here, but you know that's exactly right, Alan. Um, but you're also a pretty accomplished houndsman, and we'll get to that in a second. But um, I like talking to people and that that kind of live outside themselves, look at the bigger picture, you know, think about some of the current issues, aren't afraid to get involved, and help other houndsmen across the United States and across the world on how we can how we can keep turning these hounds loose and having the the lifestyle that we have and and different things like that but but before we get to all that you know alan you also um tell us where you're at where you're from what you do for a living and then we'll get into some of those hounds all right well my name is alan bridges um and you were partly right about where i live um i'm in a little town called lexington actually i live right outside of lexington in a little community called salem and it's about 20 miles east of Athens, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And uh, go dogs. You bleed bulldog. But, <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> and um, so my family has been in the registered Angus feedstock business since 1944. And uh, before that, my great-grandfather farmed the same land. So I'm a fourth-generation farmer. I live uh, about three-tenths of a mile from where I grew up. So my family's been here uh, in in this county, actually, the county, Oglethorpe County in northeast Georgia, since uh, the 1770s. Uh, my grandfather, two or three, four times removed, uh, he was in the Continental Army, but he moved from, he came from Virginia, moved to North Carolina, and settled in Oglethorpe County back in the 1700s. Amazing. And we just didn't go very far. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. On We could do a podcast just on that, Alan, because I'm like this huge, um, I spent a lot of my years studying revolutionary war pre and colonial America. And anytime I talk to somebody that's roots are that deep, then it just, I, I can't stop 
talking about it really, but we can't, we can't spend all day doing that. <laughs> uh, my sure. family's actually 17, you know, 1750s documented landing in Virginia. So yeah, my family goes way back in this country too. And, and I think that's kind of one of those things I didn't know that before today, but that's probably why we were, I was, I was attracted to the idea of talking to you. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. But, uh, so we are, we are in the business of producing protein for people to consume. Um, we, we, we try to produce high quality Angus beef. Um, we have a freezer beef business, uh, where we sell directly to a consumer and we cut out all the middle people. Yeah. Uh, and, and, um, then we also sell genetics to commercial breeders and, and other seed stock producers all across America. Um, and we've even got some bridges genetics running around in Russia and Mexico and Canada. And those genetics come out of your generational Angus beef. Yes. Yes. Uh, just, you know, when we produce bulls, they go, well, I mean, we've, my granddad was was the founder of Bridges Angus Farm, and mm-hmm. he served as the uh, president of the Georgia Cattlemen's Association, the Georgia Angus Association. He was also the president of the American Angus Association, which is the largest beef breed organization in the world. So you got a little bit of history in uh, in uh, farming, then, is what you're saying? Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, we have a, we have a little bit. Yeah, but uh, yeah. I'm gonna and, br- I'm gonna break but, all the I'm gonna break all the rules and all the etiquette, and you can you can answer this or you can not answer this. But so, how many acres are you are you farming, and how many head of cattle are you running? Breeding pair, you know, breeding cow calves and bulls. Well, uh, we own about between five and 600 acres of land. We, we add to it as often as we can if property close to us comes up for sale. And if we're able to, you know, afford it, land mm-hmm. prices fluctuate. Um, and right now is a, is a seller's market. And so it's, it's you bet. tough. It's tough to be a buyer, uh, right now. But, um, so we have about 500 acres and mm-hmm. it's mostly in, in, pasture there's some there's some woods here um it would be if you were to come hunting with me you would kind of scratch your head and go this is kind of like hunting in indiana yeah but uh you know uh but we've we've mostly be hunting the edge of cow pastures um but i'm also not too far away from a lot of public land so uh there's hundreds of thousands of acres not far within an hour's drive of me yeah so uh but uh we farm about 500 acres the cow herd it's it's tricky i've got a, a friend of ours in eastern north carolina that that uh he he bought a lot of he bought 120 heifers from me not all at one time but over the total amount was about 120 heads and i buy all his calves back we make all of his genetic decisions and we buy all those calves back, and that solves a lot of problems for us. I don't have to have the extra land 
I don't have to have the extra iron in terms of equipment, and I don't have to have a lot of the extra labor uh, that it would take to take care of these. Uh, my brother and I do it all by ourselves. We have also we have ten poultry houses, so we're we're uh, contract poultry growers too. And and so um, having having all that, you know, it didn't leave a lot of time for for me to go turkey hunting or duck hunting or or even deer hunting. Uh, when it got dark, we didn't do a whole lot of work, so that left time to go coon hunting. There you go. So um, my my granddad did it when he was young, and I always heard the stories. Um, never had, never. My dad didn't, um, and and it just, you know, it it evolved from when I was a young teenager to where I am today, forty five. Uh, for you know, that's the kind of hunting I chose to do because that's when I had time to hunt. Yeah. Yeah, work first, hunting after that, and um, tell us about those hounds. Tell us what you what you have built down there in Georgia, because your name pops up quite a bit um, on social media and in different hunt uh, uh, records and things like that. So hunt standings, you know. Tell us tell us what what line of dog you're hunting, what breed of dog you're hunting, and and where you've where you've gone with those. Well, I've owned everything every registered recognized registered breed of hound except for a leopard and those weren't recognized by ukc when i started hunting right um but in 1995 i started with uh the first really good dog i had was uh was a blue tick an american blue tick and so i fooled with american blue ticks for about 10 years and i really liked them um, I had some really good ones, um, and I never could quite understand, you know, I'd never, I'd never fooled with a whole lot of, I had a specific bloodline in the blue tick breed that I really liked. What'd you like? And I didn't stray. Um, well, it, I doubt it would be really popular today because it, it would be super hard to find, but it was, everything that I had went back to a particular dog called Grand Knight Champion bell creek blue book okay and that that dog was a son of hammer five and so that dog crossed particularly well with uh, a lot of the Uchman stock back in the day okay and so we we that was the bloodline we had they were fast they were hard hunting they were intelligent they were loud and they were accurate and they were real good tree dogs mm-hmm but uh, I bred those things, and and being a, a a guy in his teens and early twenties, I wasn't smart enough to keep any of that back. I sold everything I made, and when I bought, when my brother and I bought our family farm in two thousand five, all of a sudden I was so busy and so concentrated on on what I was doing at work that when I came home, I was obliterated. I was tired. All I did was want to sit down, take, you know, eat supper, take a shower, sit down, probably fall asleep in the chair. My wife wake me up and honey, go bed. And, and so I, I didn't hunt for about five years. Okay. My, my dog, my dogs got old and they died off 
and when I started back, got the urge, the itch again <laughs> to start back, I called some of the people that I had sold dogs to, and they were like, who are you? so so um i called the guy that that i started with uh, steve fuckles his name and uh he's he's in south georgia and uh he he uh hooked me back up with with another blue tick and being in the angus business i was on my way to pick her up the, the the blue tick puppy and i stopped at a cow sale an angus cow sale uh, on the way down uh and visited with some friends and a buddy of mine happened to be there and he said what are you doing down here in this little town in south georgia at this cow sale i said well i've known these guys for years and years and they've been real good friends of the family and actually i'm on my way to douglas georgia to pick up a coon dog and he said, you coon hunt? And I was like, yeah, I coon hunt. And he says, man, I've got a really nice English female. If you need something to train a puppy with, give me a call. Said, okay. So I went and picked the puppy up, brought her home. Several months went by, and I called him and uh, about, about the English female, and he brought her to me, and we hunted her, and I really liked her, and so I was going to use her to help train my blue tick puppy. Well, it turns out the blue tick didn't want to go with the old dog. It always wanted to go out and do its own thing, which that was fine with me. Right, right. Um, uh, and I've got my own particular training methods that, that I've learned over the years. And, uh, you know, I was disciplining the blue tick one night for treeing some off game. I don't like to get rough with them. I don't yell at them. She got really upset with me, and she never treated for me again. No kidding. But, Just uh, dropped the ball. No huh? kidding. Hmm. She said, I'm done. And, and so I, I, gave, I gave her to a guy a couple of years later, and she hadn't been hunted in like two years, and I gave her to a guy, and she, he treated like 40 coons with her that, that summer. That, I, so, I'm telling you, I can relate to that. Sometimes dogs just need a new zip code. You know, they, they just yeah. need to, they need a new address, new zip code. Something just doesn't mesh between the two of you. I've seen that so many times in hounds, Alan, over the years. Um, well, either I'm getting them from. Yeah. I'm either getting them from somebody else or, or, you know, I've got a dog here that me and you just aren't clicking and I'll send them down the road to somebody that I know that, that, is is a good dog man and they can make something out of that dog briar creek kennels is your complete hound hunting outfitter boots lights collars and tracking equipment dog boxes kennel supplies collars clothes squalors whoo they have it all briar creek kennel is a garment and dog tree dealer owner chris girth will ensure briar creek kennel customers will get top of the industry customer service whether you purchase from their website or you find them at a major coonhound event, Chris and his staff will share expert knowledge and experience about every product they offer. Chris Girth is a top competitor and breeder of hounds. He knows what gear you need to be successful. 
Look for Briar Creek Kennels on the web for a complete online store or look at their fully stocked trailer at any major coonhound event. Briar Creek Kennels, offering a hound hunting public generations of excellence. Check out Dogs Are Treed at dogsartreed.com. Leashes, tie-outs, medical kits, paws are protected, and dogs are hydrated, cutting-edge, high-quality gear for you, the houndsman. Gear designed for houndsmen by houndsmen with the highest level of craftsmanship available. Dogs Are Treat is also the exclusive dealer for Houndsman XP Podcast logo wear. We're working on our line over there, but we just dropped some new hats at Dogs Are Treed, and you can see them on our page at dogsartreed.com. And don't forget at checkout, enter the code HXP 20% off, all capital letters, and you will get 20% off of your entire order. Find them today at dogsartreed at dogsartreed.com. Seen it before. Mm-hmm. Well, my uh, the English female, she rocked on. She did everything better, faster, and more stylish. I mean, I like everything about her. And she, her name was Patches. I still have her. She's fourteen. Uh, okay. She's what turned me on to. She's what turned me on to English dogs. Um, and my desire to build all-night English kennels uh, came from having her and wanting to continue her line. And how was she? Um, how's she bred, Alan? What's she go back to? Well, on the top, she goes. Uh, she's double-bred. Campbell's Bluegrass Amos. That's not a bloodline you see a lot anymore. Uh, yeah, but it's and, a good one. <laughs> and yeah, that's that's true. Uh, <laughs> and if you go back and look on her fourth generation of her of her pedigree, I mean, it's like every single dog would be considered a Hall of Fame type dog. Evans Red Joe, uh, Merck Singing Fat. Yep. Uh, you know, Swamp Swamp Roosters in there. Uh, Bluegrass Amos is in there. Timber Star Buck. I mean, all those old, famous English pounds yeah. were in her pedigree. Yeah. Well, uh, along about that time, another friend that I'd known forever, he had he had gotten hold of some English dogs that he really liked, and uh, they produced uh, a dog that I wound up buying before he turned two, and um, his name was Freaky Fast Jimmy John. We call him JJ. <laughs> and and a friend of mine gave him that name. I didn't name him. I don't take any credit for that. I'm not that creative. But uh, well, anyway, ne- neither read, was hey, neither was he. He was just a copycat. Well, hey, <laughs> I'll be honest with you. He he was struggling trying to come up with a name for the dog. The guy I bought him from, and he was watching an NASCAR race, and Kevin Harvick won, and Jimmy Johns was his sponsor and we called the dog JJ and he was standing there talking on TV and he had a big JJ hat on. Yeah. So that's that's how the dog got his name. <laughs> um and so I I bought JJ and I bred JJ to patches and it's kind of where I started. Um but all of my dogs with the exception of patches go now go back to a dog that was named Hammond's McNutt Creek Bullet. And 
he sired 60 something puppies. Um, and his percentage would be considered really high for the dogs that were titled out of him. Uh, he's got eight or nine dogs that are titled. Uh, he was never bred to any kind of outstanding females. Um, there were some, you know, some pretty good dogs in there. I never got to hunt with Bullet, but uh, he was he was gone before before I got involved with with these dogs. But uh, JJ's double bred on the old Bullet dog, and then I've added to him uh, my dogs. But mainly the dogs that I have, I've bred up, and yeah. and uh, I added uh, a, a son of Bullet. Uh, he's a grand night dog called Timber Cutters Major. Um, and then I bought another female that would have been out of Major's littermate sister. And I named her, her, her sire. Actually, I think he came up from, from somewhere in the Midwest. Uh, a dog, he was a dual grand dog called Metal Creek Stick to it. And he was, he was off of Charlie Seven and out of a Huckabuck female. Ooh. And so... Yep, and so I bought her. Those are Indiana and that's dogs. Kind of where, yeah, and so I, I I bought her as a as a real young dog. She was 16 months old when I got her. She had barked at a cage coon when she was 23 months old. She was a night champion, and um, she made her bones by getting by herself and having a coon. And you know that's what JJ was the same way. Mm-hmm. And and so. Um, that's just where I've just built it from. These dogs, they're, I consider them to be people pleasers. Uh, if you're happy, by golly, they're happy. And they're pretty versatile. I've, I've had them used on big game. Um, I've had them used on uh, wild hogs um, and had them used on deer. Uh, they're fast enough they can keep up with some of these deer dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're they're real easy, you know. I tell everybody I'm I, I've been doing this a while, and I have mastered 172 different ways to mess a dog up. <laughs> but I I don't get to take a I don't get to take a whole lot of credit for my dogs turning out, other than I'm the guy that buys the fuel and has the truck and takes them to a place to where they can learn how to do what they need to do. And I just basically show them what I don't like. Yeah. So how, how many, they do the rest. how many generations are you into, uh, your breeding program there, Alan? I've got the fourth one in the welting box right now. Okay. So four generations deep and, and tell me, I, I this is going to be a multi-pronged question, but the first question I'm going to ask is tell me what, you look for in a hound that makes you think that this is a breeding quality type dog. This is what I want to carry on. Just tell me some characteristics that, that you see there that makes you want to breed it. And then we'll talk about what you see that says that's not good. That's a nice dog, but it's not getting bred. Yeah. Um, so if you talk to, 10 coon hunters, you'll get 12 different answers on this. But um, it just, it just they just kind of come to me. When it comes to picking a puppy, I, I'll tell you the secret to picking a puppy is 
you decide what checks you want to keep and you take what's ever, whatever's left. Um, I, I, that's kind of how I do it. Um, uh, you know, if I decide I want a male puppy, I put them up for sale. People come buy them and usually I'll take whatever's left in the box. Um, I'm not, you know, sometimes I'll fall in love with one just because it's pretty or whatever, but you can't tell a whole lot about a six week old puppy other than, uh, I can tell you right off the bat, if it wants to crawl away from me and get in the corner of the box, that, that, that dog is probably not going to make it in terms of being able to learn from you because he's afraid of you. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I've, I've learned a few tricks over the years to kind of get them to bond with you but in the back of that dog's mind he's always going to be skittish and that dog in my opinion should never be used for breeding stock Mm -hmm. and if you if you breed dogs you know you all everybody that breeds dogs makes some of those uh whether whether people admit it or not um you know these dogs do not walk on water um but i've been very very blessed with being able to take a line of dogs and try, I'm going to use the wrong words here, but try to keep it within a family line. I guess that's what I want to, the way I want to say it. I was going to say keep it pure, but that's, that, that, that's not correct. But keep it within a family line. And I think that me and a couple of my friends who breed dogs the same way have managed to do that. Um, and it's not that I'm against any other bloodlines. This is the bloodline that just suits me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these dogs may not be for the next guy or the guy for that. But, you know, if, if you go hunting with me and you like what I have, I'm more than willing to share. Yeah. Uh, I, I just. Well, I, th- they, I think I think there's a lot of people out there like that. Uh, you know, I, I'm like that. I know what I like, and if you like it too, then then I might be able to hook you up down the road with with some of that. If if you don't sure. like it, then there are plenty other places and plenty of other you know uh, other stud dogs and breeding programs out there that might produce what you like. But I try not. I I don't flip flop when I'm raising puppies or whatever to what is fitting a scorecard or, or whatever. And, and that's why I'm not, you know, <laughs> breeding 6,000 females with a stud dog too. But, um, you know what I mean? Me I, if, if you, if you like it, I, I feel like I've got a pretty dog on good handle on what a coon dog is and what they're supposed to be. And, uh, I know what I like. And if you like it too, then, then we can be friends and you can hunt some of my stuff. If you don't, then no hard feelings. Just go find what you like. Yeah, I agree. A hundred percent. So I've, I guess what I like most about these dogs is they've got it between the ears. They're smart. I, I love a, a smart dog. I can take a puppy and in 15 minutes I can have him sitting. I can have him staying. And within two or three days, I can have him out in the yard working, working him probably without a leash. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the dogs that, that handle for me get a lot more 
woods time than the dog that's just trying to drag me all around the yard. I, I am the same I, way. So I, I just I just refuse to work with a dog that that is an idiot. And and I produce some of those. Uh, but I, I generally try to raise a couple of litters a year. Um, I don't want to raise too many because raising puppies, if you do it right, it's a lot of work and it's expensive. Um, and so I, you know, I, I don't do this for a living. Uh, I do it because I enjoy it. I love it. Um, it's just, it's, I don't know. I think it was put in my DNA generations ago. Sure. But, but, uh, it's one of those things. If it's, uh, if it's, a uh, you know, I, I don't, I'll probably catch some flack for this. I don't like to hunt in the rain. I'm 45. I've, <laughs> I've done it. Yeah, I, me too. You know, I, I don't like to hunt when, when it's 10 degrees outside. I'm from Georgia. If I wanted to live in the snow, I'd, if I'd go hunting in the snow, I'd want to move to Michigan or Indiana or something. <laughs> and so, you know, I I don't mind it when it's, when it's cold. It's just, and I don't, on the flip side, I'll go hunting when it's 85 degrees at 10 o'clock, and a lot of folks won't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, but, I won't I won't hunt when it's that hot out. I can't stand to hunt. I've, I've become come to the point where I just, summertime hunting just doesn't do it for me anymore. I used to. I used to get out there. I used to get after it, and because I was hunting something, I felt obligated that I needed to get out there and, and stuff, but I, yeah, I've stood under those trees when it was raining so hard and you're trying to shine a tree and you can't shine a tree because you're looking into raindrops and, and, you know, or rain showers. And so I'm, I'm right there with you, but I will tell you that some of the coldest nights I've ever spent in my life have been, uh, in Georgia, you know, much colder than, than when I was in Indiana. And it's just, Georgia's a, a strange place, especially South Georgia. If it's 30 degrees and the humidity is 70, 80%, it is cold. Oh, yeah. It's real cold. Um, you know, with, with my, we'll call it my day job or my career, uh, I've been all over the country and I've been in some cold weather. And let me tell you, 20 degrees in Kansas with the wind blowing 20 miles an hour, is still better than 34 degrees and a light rain in Georgia. I have the same way with Southeast Indiana. We're, we're really not that far apart. I mean, I could be at your house probably in six and a half hours, uh, driving South on 75, but at the same time, uh, we get those days too. And I've told all my friends out, you know, all the people I know out in the Rocky mountains, we, we pulled out of the Swan Valley, uh, one year, lion hunting and it was 20 below zero and that's cold for somebody that grew up in montana and but i was looking at him and i was like guys i've been colder at 35 degrees in indiana when it's raining and nasty Mm -hmm. for sure i can i hear you uh so but you know i I just these dogs have just they've got that they've they, I'll just, I'll just say it like this. They suit me and they suit my personality. Uh, they, when, when they're, you know, finished, they hustle. Uh, 
they're smart enough to know that they'll work coal tracks, but they're smart enough to know when, when, you know, that tune, they're not, they're, they're not going to get it treated and they'll move on. They don't stand on their head a lot. Uh, they've got some winding ability. Uh, that, and that's probably what I love most about them is they can stand on the edge of a field and pick their head up and tree one 300 yards away that's never been on the ground. Mm-hmm. And, and that has won me a lot of hunts. Um, they're independent, but not independent to a fault. What do you mean uh, by that? So, what, do you, what do you mean independent to a fault? Well, that just goes to the, the deep and lonely mindset where my dog's going to be by itself, whether it's at 100 yards or 100 miles. Mm-hmm. And and where I am, the coon are definitely not as thick as they would be in Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, those kind of places. So when I say they got to hustle, they, when you when you cut them, they've got to go hunting, and they've got to find they've got to go find a track. And there's some places around here where they'll have to go a mile to get struck. Um, I prefer not to hunt those places. <laughs> but me either <laughs> but they're they're here and yeah. and so the dog that you that you cut in there that is that is independent what i would classify as independent to a fault is the dog that's going to go and get struck and get in there and get treed and another dog honor him and he don't want to be there with that other dog, even though he did all the work or another dog get treed and they're working the same track and it could be bang, bang. That dog gets that tree scored and the independent to a fault dog, well, he's through there another mile before he picks up another track. And then if you're in a competition hunt, you just, you just bust it out the back end and, and you're beat no matter how good your hound is. Houndsman XP is very proud of our partnership with the organization Freedom Hunters. Freedom Hunters is a nonprofit organization that takes America's veterans hunting from field to field, from the battlefield to a field near you when you volunteer your time to take America's warriors hunting with you and your hounds. It's easy. Go to houndsmanxp.com, click on the partnership tab. And it will take you to Freedom Hunters. You can go direct to their website to make donations at freedomhunters.org. Support America's heroes. Let's pay it back. Visit Freedom Hunters at freedomhunters.org. Or go to houndsmanxp.com and you can find them on our website from field to field. Yeah, so so kind of describe... Are you hunting? Uh, are you hunting PKC, UKC? You know how is how has the time change affected uh, your success rate or the style of dog that you're hunting? Well, I've hunted I've hunted PKC. Um, I mainly hunt UKC just because of the PKC clubs. There's a lot of them in Georgia, just not a lot of them around me, and I'm not going to drive an hour hour and a half on a tuesday night right to go to a competition hunt you got angus to breed um, and take care of and farm and a full-time got, job that's right yeah yep. and you know 
and everything's fine as long as I'm sitting in my recliner. But as soon as I get in the truck and get out of pocket, it, it all goes to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, it, I, I enjoy competition hunting, but I love to coon hunt. And so I can take the competition or leave it. Um, but I do enjoy it. Um, what I can tell you, and this is probably leading into something else, but when I was in high school in the 90s, I could pull to the end of my driveway, and within five miles in any direction you pointed from that driveway, I could start hunting. Mm. And within that, within that distance, I, there would be somewhere for me to hunt. And I could go hunting, and I could turn loose three or four times a night for a solid month and never, ever turn loose in the same place twice and never be more than five miles from my house. Yeah. You can't do that today. Yeah. And, and so we've got, uh, 7 million people that live 80 miles from us, from where I live in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I wouldn't begin to guess how many live in Athens, Georgia. It's not nearly as, as big as Atlanta is, but University of Georgia is there, and we get a lot of urban sprawl from Athens, and and so uh, you know it's more and more difficult to find somewhere to go. Uh, a piece of property that the timber company owned in the nineties, uh, somebody has gone in there and bought two acres of land and think they own the whole place. Or it's been leased out to big game hunters uh, that do not want dogs there. Mm-hmm. And so it's more and more difficult to, to find places to go. Um, you know, and that's another reason that I think that independent to a fault, deep and lonely style dog, which I love a deep and lonely dog. Don't think I'm putting them down. Uh, you know, that used to be my style. Mm-hmm. But today, they either get out of pocket and you're beat in a hunt, or you better have a really good relationship with your sheriff or the <laughs> game warden. <laughs> because they're going to get on somebody else's property and they're not going to like it. Right, right, right. I hear you, man. And growing, growing up in my area, you know, I know, I, I knew, I'm don't know all of them anymore but i knew all of my neighbors and none of them cared that i was on their place uh if they saw lights they either knew it was me or i could pull up in the yard and oh yeah alan that's fine go get your dog i hope they got him. you know if it's season make sure you make sure you get him because i've been having them come up and getting the getting the cow feeder right or catching my chickens or, or something sure and and it's not that way anymore. Um, so we've got to, you know, as houndsmen, we're fighting it on all fronts. Um, I think that the big game hunters leasing up large tracts of land uh, have have hurt us in terms of they don't want you in there because you're going to run all the game off, even though we have science on our side and a, and a pretty elaborate study that was done in the mid-'90s that says they don't. Uh, and I can get you a link to put that on the 
XB Facebook page where yeah, people we've, can read that study. Out. We have uh, we've posted that several times. I'll post it again though because I think houndsmen need that in their uh, toolbox to be able to talk about it. But I, let me let me tell you a story about that that. So what we're talking about is the study that was done in uh, South Carolina. And it was the way this study went was the university and a, um, a lumber, a timber company set aside, mm-hmm. pro- set aside properties. And they wanted well, to the South Carolina department of natural resources. Was yeah. Involved. South Carolina department of natural resources. They, they all came to an agreement that these college students were going to do this study on, on uh, the effects of hound hunting on deer movement. And so they had a control area that they set aside and they didn't hunt it. And you're going to have to help me here because I'm going off of memory. But I think it was uh, two years that they didn't hunt it. The other piece of property, they hunted continuously. They deer hunted it. They, they, They did all the regular hunting, and they also allowed coon hunting in there. They didn't allow coon hunting on the control. And then after two no, Go ahead. That's not exactly how it went. And the reason I can tell you this is because I read it like two days ago. Okay. Um, it's been a while I, since again, I read it. And I refresh my memory. What they did was they took, it was about a seven or 8,000 acre track of land. Okay. And they, they divided it in half, roughly. And they tagged 25 or 30 deer. Yes. Yes. I left and, that part out. It was, it was, a, well, they radio called her 25 or 30 deer. I said tag. Right. Um, you're thinking cows. Was, yes. It was fifty four percent fifty four percent bucks and forty six percent does that were that were in that that group of deer that they tagged or they tagged again. Uh that they radio collared. And so they would hunt, you know, one night a week and they did it over two years over two years. Uh they simulated during deer season, they simulated deer hunting with a trail camera. Okay. where it would be a stand and I, i'm thinking that they were they set up some bait stations because in south carolina uh or at least for this study they they were able to bait them um and so they set up trail cameras as as that trail camera facilitated a deer hunter and they would measure, they would coon hunt uh one side of the property on a particular night of that week and left the other side as a control. Mm-hmm. And then the following week, they would hunt the other side and leave, you know, say they hunted the east side this week, the west side, they left alone. The next week, they hunted the west side, and the east side, they left alone. And right. over that study, there was no statistical difference in deer movement. And there was no statistical difference in deer movement before the hunt or after the hunt. And it gave the, the cameras over those two-year studies, it was somewhere in the seven or 8,000 number of opportunities that a deer hunter would have had to harvest a deer. And, and so, uh, so there were, again, there was no statistical difference between the control and the test sites. And so, but you show that to a deer hunter and they're like, I don't care. I don't want you. Yeah. So, so take me back to my story when I, before I butchered the whole study thing, 
Um, so we were pushing for the Hoosier Tree Dog Alliance. I was testifying in the Natural Resources Commission hearing about this. And these deer hunters wouldn't hear it. I mean, they just, they were like, nah, that's South Carolina. That doesn't apply to here. And um, it, it was amazing that even, so my, my response now, jumping ahead, you know, that's how that went. And, and we did get an expansion on the, on the training season, running season, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we did accomplish that. But after the, all of that was over and through that whole thing, my response to them was, you show me your science that say, says that it does affect it. Because I've got science that says it doesn't. So don't tell me that it speculate and, and tell me that it doesn't work. You show me your science that says it doesn't work. That's the only way you could combat it. That's right, uh, but they're not going to. You know, the, the 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 crux of the situation is big game hunting brings in more total dollars for your state, for my state, for any state that has big game hunting than small game hunting does. Right. The problem that lies therein is small game hunting is the gateway for young people to get involved with the outdoors, to build a love for hunting. I mean, you will take a seven-year-old rabbit hunting. You'll take them squirrel hunting. You'll take them coon hunting. Uh, you know, if they're tough little rascals, you might even take them bear hunting. But but that those are activities that a child with a shorter attention span than an adult would really enjoy. Now, if you took that same kid, all of a sudden, Dad, I want to go deer hunting with you, and put them in the deer stand, they're going to be up there 15 minutes. I got to pee. I'm bored. <laughs> I'm going to move around. And nobody's going to have fun. But if you get those kids involved early and in activities where they can run around, they they can play with their buddies, and then you say, okay, the dogs are treated, let's go get them, and you know, they run in there and, and they're able to pet on old Sally or, or right. big Bobby or whatever yep. and see that raccoon or whatever game you're hunting in the tree and they're hooked. Yeah. I, I it is right off the bat. They're hooked. I, I see these deer hunters that, that want to start their kids out with deer hunting and they've got a ground blind. Maybe it's turkey hunting, whatever it is. Turkey hunting's rough for a small kid too. I can tell you that. I've raised three, but they'll get them in a blind and then they'll hand them an iPad or an iPhone and say, "Hey, go ahead and play your game while you're doing. You know, mute it out and play that game." They want to keep them busy and and wait for the deer to to walk out. And really, all they're teaching them to do is shoot. But I'm thinking, man, that's they are missing so much. When I take when I take young kids coon hunting, and we did it for years here. Um, at our place, they have a blast. They're they're over in the creek. If they're bored, they're flipping over rocks and catching crawdads. They're looking at deer tracks. They're they're picking up deer deer droppings and throwing them at each other. And and that all sparks an interest in of that outdoors mentality. They don't have time to uh, time to time to look at an iPhone or an iPad. They're they're into the hunt. Well, every rock they kick over. Oh, yeah. Every crawdad they catch, every track they see, they're learning. Yes, yes. And and so that 
that's how we keep our youth involved. And it's a, it's, it's a shame and it makes me sad that, that, you know, children or you know, young people that want to get involved in the outdoors, you know, and want to hunt, especially, I, I have, I'll be honest, I haven't deer hunted in about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I see, I, we've got big deer on my farm. We got a lot of deer on my farm. It'd be easy for me to stop what I'm doing in the daytime and, and go sit in a deer stand and go hunt a deer. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I enjoy eating them, but you know, that just doesn't do it for me. I, I harvest very few raccoons, mm-hmm. uh, because coon hunting for me is not about killing anything. It's about watching my dogs work and, and, and enjoying what, you know, the Lord's given me to enjoy. And also, I don't know, I don't want to make it sound arrogant, but seeing something that, that I had a hand in doing from conception on out to a finished product, that's what gets my heart pumping. Yeah, that is, that is such a valid point. You know, and, and I'm not, I'm not here. We're trying to bridge gaps, you know, bridge the gaps in the hunting community with this podcast. I hope deer hunters listen mm-hmm. to this and they listen to, uh, the message about, man, let your kids go coon hunting. Take your, find somebody in your area that, that has a hound and take them bear hunting, take them coon hunting, understand what that is. Watch how your kids react to that. But the other thing that, that we want the message to be is, you know, guys like you, guys, there's thousands, thousands and thousands of houndsmen out there that started planting that pup's first tree three years ago or four years ago mm-hmm. when, when they raised its mother. And then when they, when they bred that, they selectively picked the stud for their next litter. And as that puppy was born and the way they nourished it and they brought it up and now it's making its first tree, it may be two or three years in the making that they've got invested in that first time that that pup pulls up, locates, and trees its first raccoon or its first bear, its first lion. And that's such a huge investment that we make. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I, I know I've probably skipped around all over the place during this thing already, but, but, uh, you know, no, you're doing great. When, 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 you know, I, I don't know, I kind of feel like I've glanced over a bunch of it. Uh, but, you know, you when, when you first approached me about, about doing this, you were, you were wanting, you said something about, you know, talking about how we need to be able to, you just said it bridged the gap with with uh, landowners, and you said it even at the beginning of the podcast. You know my thoughts on on how we continue into the twenty first century with with free cast and hounds. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the way the way. Well, I'll say this: the way forward is not the way that we used to do it, and it probably not going to be the way you or I or anybody else that might listen to this podcast expect. I think, I, I believe there is a way forward to do it, but it's going to take a lot of effort and 
it's, you know, people, people, people may laugh when they say this, but it's not anymore. It's not what you know. Part of it's what you know for sure, but it's not all about what you know. It's going to be about who you know. And you need to know who your state representatives are. You know who your state senator is. You need to know who your Congress people are. You need to know who your senator is in the U.S. Senate. And as houndsmen, it doesn't matter if we hunt squirrels, rabbits, hogs, deer, bear. I don't want to leave anything out that you can hunt with a dog. <laughs> Ducks, doves, yeah. it doesn't matter. There are more of them that do not and don't know and don't like what we do. And as hunters, I don't even care if you're a steel hunter. They're coming for you, too. Man, I wish we could get people to people understand that alan i think i think a lot of times hounds houndsmen are the low-hanging fruit we talk about this a lot on the podcast but we're our we're we're our own worst enemy and in what way i just well this is the way my grandpa did it and this is the way my dad did it and this is the way i'm gonna do it and social media is a blessing and a curse and you can get your message out there, but so can the so can the people that want to put you away mm-hmm. and get rid of your right to to hunt with a dog. And you, we we've got to know who we're dealing with, and you've got to fundamentally understand that they don't like you, and they don't care about you, and they're going to do everything they can to get their way. And to heck with everything else. But, you know, I don't want to paint a dreary picture, but it has been proven time and time again. If you, if, if hunters can come together, they can stop it. Right. We have, we have science. And if, if, you know, as you need, Georgia is a prime example of we need to get all our hunters together and form an alliance some type we don't have that um that would encompass people of a hunting persuasion regardless of the game you pursue and and the things that you enjoy doing so it's pretty tribalistic down there you've got you've got people that that deer hunt you got people at turkey hunt and then you got then you got bear hunters and then you got coon hunters and but there's no united front for hunters in georgia that's what I'm hearing. Well, I mean, each group will have their own. I mean, we've got Bucks Unlimited, uh, Quail Unlimited, Ducks Unlimited. Uh, we've got the Georgia Federation of Coon Hunters. Um, I am. I, I may get called out on this, but I'm not 100% sure that we have a Bear Hunter Association. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of black bears in Georgia. Yeah. Well, we've got yep. them in North Georgia. We got them in South Georgia. I'm pretty uh, sure there's a Georgia Bear Hunters Association. Pretty I, sure. I, I'm, like, like I, you can't quote me on that. I've never right. heard of. Them. 
Well, that's and, that's an issue. And, uh, if you haven't, that's an issue. Yes. That's right. And we need to be able to all come together and find common ground and, you know, not have the mindset of, well, this, that's their problem. They're not, they're not messing with me. They're coming for you, too. They just haven't got to you yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but having said all that, we are very fortunate in Georgia that our Department of Natural Resources is very, very pro-hunter. Um, you know, we may not, as individuals and, and individual groups of hunters, we may not like everything that the state does. And that's okay. They've, they, they've gone forward, and this is all my opinion, uh, they've gone forward and tried to do what's best biologically for wildlife. And and I, I, I fully believe that. Um, if you don't like something, the first thing that someone high up in the Georgia Department of Natural Resources would tell you is you need to call your state representative. You need to talk to your senator. You need, you know, this is something that you'll have to do through the legislative process. And if you're like me, and I'm speaking to the folks that might be listening, if you're like me, you're busy. Right. And you've got a thousand things on your plate. You're trying to make a living. You're trying to raise your kids. You've got to get your kids to write their term papers. All this stuff. But that's what lobbyists are for. And that's why it's important to have a group get together and fund lobbyists to have your voice heard. These guys that are elected, when they get elected, regardless of party, their main job once they get elected is to get reelected. <laughs> you got that right. Gather, if they think they can gather up the voters, they'll put forth legislation in their dis- from their district to make the voters in their district happy. Yeah. And so, you know, you've got to stay on. They work for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I'll take the line out of the forest. You know, and that's all I got to say about that. Yeah. Well, I think uh, there's several things that we need to do going forward. And my representative told me, he gave me a really good piece of advice. He goes, Chris, it's not nearly as important that you know who I am. It's more important that I know who you are. And and that only happens if you are willing to step out and make that contact and talk to those people and and let them know that you're watching. And uh, it's I think I think there's a lot of things everything everything in our society and our culture these days gets spun and convoluted and, and all this other stuff. But at the end of the day, wildlife professionals and wildlife managers want to do what's best for the resource. So it's our job as hunters and houndsmen to continually show and, and show that we are do, working for that, that end. Um, and that's, what's going to make it survive into the that's future. Right. You know, there's a lot of emotional, charge stuff that comes out we watched it happen in nevada last year with with bear hunting and it was defeated we watched it in montana trying to restrict bear hunting it was f- defeated you know and and i think it's going to happen again this year in vermont 
and bear hunting is a hot topic right now. Nobody's fighting against coon hunters because we've got the agriculture on our side, the ag community on our side for that. You know, Indiana, right. no, nobody talks about outlawing coon hunting because suburban suburbanites living outside of Indianapolis have problems with raccoons. Farmers have problems with raccoons. Homeowners, landowners, it all, you know, and and they like that out there. Now we do have some the biggest the biggest issue in Indiana with coon hunting is people that that are deer hunters that that's where the real first conflict is. The second conflict is with landowners that don't understand what we're doing out there in the middle of the night. And that can be solved by getting in your truck on a Sunday afternoon while it's still daylight and, and driving around in your community and talking to people and introducing who you are and telling them what's going on and what you can offer them as a, as a hunter. The raccoon's not going to be eating their cat food off your porch anymore if you allow me to hunt here or i'm hunting on the farmer's place next door i might end up on your five acres because the coon's coming over here to eat your cat food or get your bird seed or whatever and if you just have that communication and they can put a face to it prior to man you can solve a lot of issues and yeah but but it takes uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure yep. in, in that instance but absolutely it, i agree but it just takes uh, it just takes we have to be, nobody's going to flag you down when they see your truck rolling by with the dog box and saying, Hey, are you, are you a houndsman? I need you to hunt here. Nobody's going to do that. You need to, you need no. to approach them. That's right. Um, you know, and another thing uh, that when you were talking about that, the, the suburban folks that, that have the raccoons that they knock over their trash cans, they eat, they eat Fluffy's cat food, all that stuff. A raccoon has no value to most people right and it's up to houndsmen that pursue them to give them value and you know we've got a story to tell and it's a great story it's a story of of family it's a story of discipline um it's a story of of being a steward of the land yes and especially being stewards of other people's property. And, you know, we've got a good story to tell. Uh, and we, as houndsmen and women, need to get out there and tell it. And, you know, I try to, but, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit guarded about what I say to whom and where I say it because, you know, my wife always over my shoulder saying, you really shouldn't put that on Facebook. <laughs> and I'm like, well, they need to hear it. <laughs> they need to hear it from somebody else. You don't need to say that. I'm a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and I tell, and I go back and tell her, somebody's got to say it. Right. And, and so again, that that's a plat social media being a platform for us to to get our story out, and but we've got to be responsible in the way we use it. Um, Man, we can yeah. we can do a whole podcast on that because you moderate you moderate a Facebook page. We're not I, we don't have time to get into it tonight or you know during that's this true. episode, but 
but uh, yeah, we could we could absolutely go through and talk about social media, houndsmen and social media, and we've we've touched on it several times. But Alan, there is so much we could talk to you about. I I I hope you'll come back and we can. I appreciate you taking time to to do this. Um, I'd like to come down and and hunt with you sometime. Uh, I'll stay in touch with you, but. Uh, Man, I, I appreciate your time. I really do. Yeah, it, it was my pleasure. And, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to be on this thing as much as you'll have me. I guarantee you. Uh, like well, I said at the beginning, I got a big mouth. I got a lot to say. <laughs> I knew that's why, I, and I do too, and that's that's what makes it, you know, somebody's got to say it, and you got to have people that are willing to jump out there and say it. So um, I feel like we had a good discussion. We we got to know. Yes, sir. We got an introduction to Mr. Allen Bridges from Georgia, and there's a lot more layers to this onion. We can talk next next time. We'll talk about the North Georgia Houndsman Association and your involvement there, and all the good things you guys are doing. Oh yeah, it's a it's a it's a labor of love, and and yeah, but you're right. There's a whole lot we can talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Alan. I appreciate your time, and uh, we're going to wrap this one up. Until next time, buddy, you follow your hounds, and I'll follow mine. Yes, sir.